Good morning. Uh, welcome to our service on this uh, Paul Godot shirt Sunday. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word, uh, the means by which you speak to us in a living and active way. Please do that this morning uh, for our um, deepening in our Christian walk such that we can walk as people who draw on all the resources that you give us, not least the resource of prayer. Amen. Uh, how are you? Well, of course, we use these words in an informal greeting. Uh, of course, the social convention is that you respond, especially if you're British, uh, I'm very well, thank you, how are you? And off we go. But if I push a little bit and I say, well, no, no, but how are you really? How are things at the moment? What would you say? Uh, responses would vary. Uh, some of you here this morning would say, yeah, I'm great, and I really mean it, and I can say it with conviction. Uh, for others of you, you would say, if you're honest, life is tough. I really am struggling. Uh, some here will be in the peak of health. Others will be under the weather, even seriously ill. Some of you here will be spiritually flourishing, and some of you will be spiritually drifting, struggling to keep your head above water as a Christian. How are you? It's important to be aware of this when we meet together. How others are doing may be very different to how we are doing at any one moment in time. And it's also something that the Apostle James is clearly conscious of as he rounds off his letter. Uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, addresses four different categories of people, uh, four different life situations. Uh, each one of them starts with this term, is any of you, dot, dot, dot. So verse 13, uh, is any of you in trouble? Uh, you might say, yes, that's me this morning. Verse, th uh, verse 13 later, uh, is anyone happy? Uh, verse 14, is any one of you sick? And verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth. So, uh, there we are. Different categories, different places where we're at. And indeed, in a month's time, you may be in a different category to what you are this morning. But the question is, which of those would best describe your situation today? Well, uh, God has a message for you through this passage. And if we are experiencing these difficult conditions, uh, the question is, what does God have to say to us this morning? Uh, the question is, how do we keep going as we wait for Jesus' return, waiting patiently for that? Uh, are we in trouble? Are we happy? Are we sick? Are we wandering? Uh, we'll skip over quite quickly on the first two, but the third one we'll spend a little more time on, the one about uh, praying when we're sick, because that's a little more complicated and then we'll conclude with, uh, are we wandering? Okay, so the first one. Firstly, verse 13, is any one of you in trouble? Uh, the word for trouble here is used of any circumstances, any situations which cause us distress. Uh, it covers all kinds of afflictions and trials. Are you suffering in some way at the moment? Are you going through the mill? Uh, is it a relationship difficulty? Are you under particular stresses at work? 
Uh, is there something causing you stress? Is something giving you a hard time for your faith? Life in a fallen world takes all of us through such experiences at some point. What should we do? Verse 13 again. Uh, if any of you is in trouble, he should pray. He should pray. Uh, it's very simple. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Uh, that is what we were singing about in the song prior to the sermon. What a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, when we face trouble, what is our natural fallen tendency? Is it to pray? I'd say it isn't. We tend to default to worrying. Our hearts fill with anxiety and stress. And thereafter we may sink into a state of despond. Uh, we may complain. We may then operate on a short fuse. Uh, we may, if we're British, grin and bear it and put on that brave face. Uh, we may re retreat into Netflix. Yet what should we do as Christians? We should pray. That is the basic biblical response in hard times, to pray. Of course, we're to pray at all times, but especially when things are hard. We pray for deliverance and we say, Lord, please give me strength to keep going. And when we pray, as we sing about in that song, we hand the burden over to the Lord to carry for us. Now, I don't know if it's one of your ambitions to climb Everest, but if you do, you'll soon realize that uh, you have a lot of kit to carry. And if you know anything about climbing Everest, you'll know that you need a Sherpa, or maybe Sherpas, depending on how much stuff you have. Imagine carrying all that kit on your own. It would be exhausting. And yet a Sherpa comes alongside, a big strapping guy, or lady, maybe, and carries the load, shares it. And so it is when we're in hard times. We need a Sherpa, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we enlist his services. He, we share the load when we pray and we unburden our hearts to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find prayer difficult. It's that challenge of living by faith and not by sight. Uh, my sight sees many things around me that demand my attention. Life is busy. There are so many pressing things to do. If I'm honest, I tend towards action in my own strength rather than praying for God's strength. Uh, there is a time for arrow prayers, for praying on the go, but there is also a time when we need to set aside time to pray in the quietness on our own. Now then, can I suggest to you uh, the five-minute challenge? If you are struggling to get that time alone with God each day, why not aim for just five minutes each day, focused, uninterrupted prayer? Uh, set the countdown timer maybe on your mobile phone or your chicken egg timer and carve out that space. Apparently it takes five weeks to develop a habit. Keep going. Just put aside five minutes each day for dedicated, focused prayer without any interruption. And maybe after a few weeks, we'll be able to increase it to 10. So, is anyone in trouble? Uh, secondly, uh, verse 13 continues. Is anyone happy? 
Uh, the word here for happy means to be in good spirits, to be cheerful, to be encouraged. Uh, it's talking about that inner state of well-being. But obviously, we tend to be happy when our outer circumstances are good. Uh, perhaps that's you at the moment. Life is good. Uh, you're full of beans. You feel content and at peace. What should you do? Verse 13 again. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, I can't speak for you, but I find it so easy to take things for granted. And my health, my wealth, my family, my ministry. Remember Jesus, he healed 10 lepers, and yet how many came back to thank him? Only one. Which would I be? Would I be one of the nine who forgot to thank God, or would I be the one who came back to thank him? Uh, do we not miss out on so many opportunities to thank and to praise God at the simple blessings of everyday life? They're actually opportunities for our spiritual encouragement and enrichment. Uh, when life is good and we're happy, we should take that extra step of thanking and praising God. For at the end of the day, he is the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes. So we're not just to turn, therefore, to God when the wheels are falling off, but also when they're running smoothly. Uh, why not praise God as we experience happy emotions during each day? Uh, why don't we use whatever we are enjoying as a prompt to thank God in an arrow prayer just there and then, whatever it be that we're enjoying in the day? And we can also include time to reflect and praise God for his goodness in those five minutes we're carving out each day. So, is anyone in trouble? Is anyone happy? Thirdly, verse 14, is any one of you sick? What should you do if you are ill? Well, quite naturally and rightly, uh, the first thing we do is go to the website of our local medical practice and we book an appointment with our GP. Medical science is a means of God's grace to us and we should avail ourselves of that. But if the illness is serious, that's not all we should do. Verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, uh, I've yet to receive my call to come and pray for one of you uh, in a time of severe sickness, but please bear this in mind. Myself and the elders are available to come and pray for you in a time of sickness. Now, you may be a bit concerned here about the prospect of us pouring olive oil all over you. Uh, it says, uh, we should anoint you with oil. What is this talking about? Well, uh, we use oil for various things today, like cooking. But in biblical times and in biblical culture, olive oil was used for lots of other uh, everyday things. Uh, firstly, it was used for personal hygiene, uh, putting oil on your head and on your face, uh, like women and maybe even men today with the oil of ule, don't know. Uh, secondly, it was also the way that you cared for your guests. Uh, you put oil on their head. So remember when um, Simon the Pharisee entertains Jesus and Jesus rebukes him saying, you're not putting any oil on my head. 
So you see, that was the basic courtesy in that culture. But of course, it is not part of our culture. And you, indeed, you would be pretty unhappy if you came round to the manse and I poured some olive oil all over you. It wouldn't be a great end to the working week, would it? As for oil in connection with healing, in the New Testament, there's just this reference in James and one other in Mark chapter 6. And that is where Jesus sends out the apostles and they anoint oil on many who are sick, healing them. Now, we don't know the significance of oil in that context. It may have been symbolizing the setting apart of somebody for God's special care and attention. But suffice to say, given anointing with oil has no place in our culture today, I would suggest to you that it's no longer relevant in this particular instance today either. Just as I don't anoint my dinner guests with oil, I would tend not to anoint a sick person with oil when asked to come and to pray for them. It's interesting that uh, in Roman Catholic, Catholic theology, uh, this detail has been blown out of all proportion in the teaching on, of extreme unction. It's a sacrament. Uh, the priest, uh, according to this sacrament, anoints someone who is facing death with special consecrated oil. And the idea is that the oil removes sin. Uh, we know, of course, the oil cannot do that. And moreover, the point here in this passage is not preparation for death, but actually for recovery. So, the church leaders are to be called. Uh, they come and they pray over the sick person. Uh, prayer, of course, as church leaders, is one of the main things that we are set aside to do, as well as teaching the Word. So, do we make use of that? If you are seriously sick, why not call us to come and pray for you? But what the, is the point of doing this? Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Uh, the Lord will raise him up. Uh, the point is to bring healing. Uh, the raising up here is to be raised up from the sick bed. Now the biggest difficulty with this verse is that it seems so categorical. It seems to be so emphatic. If you do this, the person will be healed. And yet, of course, we know from experience that Christians are not always healed, even after much prayer. So how do we square that experience with verse 15? And that is a very important issue. As somebody was telling me how years ago they had lost their faith because uh, they had been promised healing if they were faithful enough and the healing hands eventuated. And as a result, their faith had hit the rocks. So how do we understand this verse? Well, as with any verse of the Bible, we need to understand it with reference to the wider teaching of Scripture. Uh, it is dangerous and misguided to get out our scissors and cut a verse out of the Bible and to hold on to it in isolation. So what do we need to know from the wider teaching of Scripture? Well, we know, of course, that healing is not always God's will. I think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're not sure what his affliction was, but he has a thorn in the flesh. He prays to God, please remove it, in 2 Corinthians 12. And yet, what does God say? He says, no, uh, but my grace will be sufficient for you. 
as Christians, we are not always healed, and indeed one day we will all die. Uh, Verse 15, it is not the only seemingly unqualified statement about prayer in the Bible. Uh, Jesus himself made many similar affirmations about prayer. Look at Matthew 18, verse 19, for example. Uh, Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. John 14, verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. The question we need to ask is this. What are the purposes of such promises? Well, they are to encourage us to pray. They are to increase our confidence in the God to whom we pray. They are to remind us that God can do all things. He is good and he is generous. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays. And what does he pray? Take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done. And indeed, we've already seen this in this letter in James. If we live according to heavenly wisdom then the underlying mantra of our life will be this, in chapter 4, verse 15. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So you see, uh, these verses cannot be taken in isolation. They must be understood against this wider canvas of Scripture. Uh, What is more, can you imagine what a burden it would be, and indeed how scary it would be, if we got everything we asked for, when we asked for it, in the measure that we asked for it. Uh, Would that not place an incredible demand on my frail wisdom? Uh, What regrets would I have to live with concerning all those misguided or mischievous prayers that I had uttered in haste? So, uh, verse 15 therefore encourages church leaders to pray with confidence in the God to whom we pray but it doesn't encourage arrogant presumption that the sick person will always be healed. And so praying for healing is a, like a, is a bit of a minefield. Uh, we need to exercise great care, but we still need to do it. Uh, we don't offer the sick person false assurances of certain healing, but we do pray for them. And where they are not healed, we mustn't blame the sick person claiming that it's their lack of faith. Uh, Most of you know that my father died at uh, a relatively early age, uh, 62. And there was one instance, I've recounted it once before, when uh, a lady came round to our house a few weeks after his passing. And uh, she was from a church of a charismatic persuasion. And uh, I remember overhearing her conversation with my mother mother in the hall. And in the course of the conversation, uh, she suggested that possibly the reason for my dad's premature death was that maybe his faith had been weak. Needless to say, the metaphorical, if not literal, boot was applied to her backside as she was ushered rather ungraciously out through the front door. Uh, When I was a a young man, not too long ago, um, one of the big issues in the church at the time, the Christian church, was that of the health of David Watson. Uh, He was a great Christian leader in his time uh, throughout the 70s and 80s, but he was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, He was involved in... um, 
sort of churches which are of the charismatic persuasion. And there were some within that church movement who assured him that he would uh, be healed from his cancer. Uh, John Wimber, uh, who was a particular founder of this uh, healing movement, prayed for David Watson. And yet, at the end of the day, uh, David Watson was not healed, and he died of his cancer in 1984. And the case of David Watson exposes the folly of those who are presumptuous in claiming that if we have enough faith, we will be healed. But uh, it is not just physical healing that is in view here. Uh, there is also a spiritual healing. Did you notice the second half of the verse 15? Again, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Sickness can be a time for dealing with sin and getting right with God and with others. Uh, there are some occasions where there is a direct link between sin and sickness. Uh, that is the case in 1 Corinthians 11. However, there are also many other places in the Bible where there is not a link between sin and sickness. Take the example of Job uh, and the man born, born blind. Uh, so take just but two. However, what is generally true in times of sickness is that we have to slow down. We have time for reflection and time to examine ourselves. And it may be that in so doing, we become aware of sin that we need to deal with and we need to repent of. Maybe things we've pushed to one side in the frenetic busyness of everyday life. And as we do so, and as we address that sin, there is this assurance of forgiveness. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. It is the challenge, in a sense, to not waste our sickness. And from this flows a general principle in verse 16. It's not just for the sick, but for all of us when we realize that we have sinned against somebody else. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Uh, this is actually not talking about confiding our sin and our struggles with a friend. Uh, the word translated confess does not just mean admit or share with somebody. Actually, it's the acknowledgement of our wrongdoing to the person who we have wronged. And the focus has now shifted in terms of the sickness. It's no longer physical sickness, but relational malady. What we have here is the path to relational healing. Confession, you see, starts the process of relational restoration. Uh, we confess, we ask for forgiveness, and we commit to the future being different. And then we pray for each other, and we are reconciled. Have you noticed, as we looked at this passage together, that prayer is the recurring theme that is interwoven throughout uh, our business does impoverish our prayer life. However, there is an even greater threat that can undermine our motivation to pray. And it's this. Believing that it makes a difference. Do we really believe that prayer makes a difference? 
Quite a few of you will remember that video we saw, I'm not sure if it was last November or the prior November, when we were preparing for the day of international prayer for the persecuted church. It was a video of um, Brother Andrew from the organization Open Doors. And if you remember, Brother Andrew was exhorting us to pray. And he, makes a, he made a statement which was uh, a very challenging statement. He said this, every prayer gets an answer from God. Every prayer gets an answer from God. Do I believe that? Sometimes it's a struggle to believe that. Sometimes it seems like my prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling. And so I need to be encouraged to believe that. And verse 16 provides that encouragement. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Uh, what does it mean by a righteous man or woman, of course? A righteous person. They are somebody who is trusting in Christ and committing to live a godly life. That is what a righteous person is. And the prayers of such a person have great power. Do we believe in the power of prayer? The encouragement to keep praying is bolstered by a real-life example in verse 17. It says this. Elijah was a man, just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You see the point? Prayer is powerful. Elijah, he was like you and me. Uh, he was not a Marvel superhero. He had his time of depression and running away, as well as his times of great faith and courage. But when he prayed, things happened. Uh, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, it was a time of judgment on Israel, and he prays, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then when the time is right, he prays again, and God relents, and the, the rain begins. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, more power than you or I realize. And as we wait for the return of Jesus, prayer is key to keep us, keeping us going. We need to pray for ourselves, and we need to pray for others, and we need to ask others to pray for us. Finally and fourthly, uh, the wanderers, verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, uh, in any church, at any given time, there are going to be people who are wandering. Not just people who are suffering or people who are cheerful or sick, but people who are straying from the truth. Because, of course, the truth is not just a way of life. Uh, sorry, the truth is, is a way of life. It's not just what we believe, but it's also how we behave. And all of us, at times, are prone to wandering off that narrow path and going astray. All of us, we're like sheep. We're pulled in many different directions. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all against us. And you may be aware of the tug of some of those at the moment. Maybe you're drifting away, perhaps into some of the wilderness 
that we've been looking at prior to this in the letter. The divided heart syndrome. The foot in two camps, one in heaven and one in the world. What should we do? Well, the instruction here is not, in fact, to the wanderer, but to the rest of us. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death. Do you see? We have a responsibility for each other. There's been this repeated refrain throughout the letter, uh, brothers, not just limited to men, but brothers and sisters. We are a family together, God's family. And like any brothers and sisters, we need to be looking out for one another. And when one of us strays, bringing us back. Because the stakes are high. What is at stake? Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death. The death here is referring to eternal death. Eternal salvation is at stake when people wander from the truth. And so we have a responsibility to be looking out for one another. Uh, This is not just the responsibility of me as the minister and the elders. It is the responsibility of all of us. If somebody has stopped coming to church, let's follow them up. Let's find out how they're going and let's get alongside them. So in this letter, uh, James has been concerned that we live out our faith, that we are people of true Christianity. Uh, He's highlighted various pitfalls and any one of us can fall into them. And he's highlighted the need for patient endurance as we wait for Jesus' return. So let's keep going in the faith together as a body of believers, encouraging each other and praying for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the very practical nature of this letter. Thank you for the way that it gives real light to our path, uh, showing us how we should walk and live. Thank you that it exposes the dangers on the path, the snares that are set at our feet, and the things which we are prone to do in terms of wandering. Please, we pray, help us all together to keep moving forward as a family of your people, moving ever one step closer each day towards glory and helping each other on that path. Amen.